This morning, I'd like to encourage you to take your Bibles with me and turn in them to Psalm 133. Psalm 133. You'll notice that this is a very short psalm. This morning, we're going to be continuing our series in the Psalms we've called Faithful Forever, Exploring the Enduring Redemptive Love of God. Here in Psalm 133, before we read, I'll just remind you that this is another psalm of ascent. We've looked at several of these during our series. As such, Psalm 133, as all psalms of ascent are, it's a song for the journey. This is a psalm of pilgrimage. It's a psalm for the gathered community of God's people. I think we'll begin to see those themes even as we read and study Psalm 133 together. I invite you now to hear from Psalm 133. This is the very Word of God. It has been given to us for the extension of His eternal glory and the securing of our enduring good. Psalm 133, beginning in verse 1. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Will you pray with me once again? Heavenly Father, we pray in particular this morning, again, that you would use your word to bring about transformation in our lives. Encourage us, convict us, bring us up short, and lead us forward by your word and spirit this morning. We pray all these things now in Christ's name. Amen. Many of you know, at least I think many of you know, that we typically take our middle school and high school students to summer conferences hosted by RYM each year. What you may not know about each and every one of those conferences is that each one of them, each summer actually, has a biblical theme. So when we gather together during those weeks, we focus on things like abiding in Christ, or peace with God, or God is at work even when it feels like He's not. This summer's theme is side-by-side, how to be a unified church in a divided world. Now, I don't think we have to look very hard to realize that our world, our nation, and even our own community, they're full of division and separation and conflict. We know war and and slavery and murder and racism and terrorism and political dissension. We experience name-calling and gossip and hatred, divorce, abuse, and neglect. These are the realities of everyday life for every single person on this planet. The reality is that because of sin, we live in a world of relational entropy. Now, I I know that's a loaded phrase, so let me explain what I mean. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, relationships were ruined. The unity and, and peace And joy and transparency that humans enjoyed with God and with one another was deeply and permanently fractured. Adam and Eve ran and hid from God and blamed others for their sin. 
They lived long enough to watch their own son Cain kill his brother Abel. God, He created us to live lives of harmony and order and support and selflessness and oneness. But sin has taken this, and it's done this. In such a divided world, Psalm 133, it, it should strike us as somewhat unnatural or even maybe a little idealistic. Here we have three short verses that talk about the beauty and blessing and power of unity. Now, if you are a bit skeptical, I get it. Relationships are hard and messy and ugly even inside the church. But, but I want you to stay with me this morning because I genuinely believe that this psalm is intended by God to fill us not with cynicism, but with great and lasting hope. As we look at this psalm together, we're going to explore it through the idea of four separate points. We're going to look at the celebration of Christian unity, the foundation of Christian unity, the illustration of Christian unity, and finally, the full realization of Christian unity. Psalm 133 in verse 1, it clearly begins with the celebration of Christian unity. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. <laughs> the psalmist in the original language, it's clear, he's almost shouting. He wants us to listen up or take notice to what he is about to say. He's making a, a proclamation or asking a rhetorical question of sorts from a position of confidence and excitement. Here, here's my simple modernized translation of this first verse. Hey you, do you realize how incredible, how amazing it is when God's people really live life together? Now remember, our experiences in a fallen world, that they teach us and they tell us more and more, day by day, year by year, that relationships are dangerous. We shouldn't get too close. We shouldn't trust too much. We need to keep our distance. It's probably better and, and safer to hold others at arm's length. I mean, as Americans, we, we even learn to prize and to celebrate the idea of being a maverick or a lone ranger. So... So with all of the hurt and betrayal and suspicion in the world, we, we do well to ask how unity can actually be a good thing for us. Well, consider again the words, familiar words for many of us, of Ecclesiastes 4. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Remember, too, that the familiar words of Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. The psalmist here is kind of like an alarm clock, Right? He is waking us up to an old and important truth. Unity, brotherhood, authentic relationship are good and pleasant because they are actually fully necessary for healthy human existence. Love, protection, accountability, rebuke, encouragement, help, support, 
all of these take place where? In the context of relationships. We cannot and must not deny the fact that God has created us to live with and for one another. Not away from and against one another. The Fellowship of the Ring tells the story of Frodo Baggins and the beginning of his long walk toward Mount Doom. In Tolkien's fantasy world of Middle-earth, Frodo is a hobbit. That means he's a small, courageous creature who accepts, eventually, the responsibility of carrying the symbol of destruction, or symbol of evil, to its destruction. Early in the story, Frodo secretly plans to abandon his friends in order to continue this dangerous, deadly journey alone. In that same moment, Sam, Mary, and Pippin find Frodo and pledge their loyalty in all that lies ahead. As we continue to really think about the celebration of unity, I want you to hear the words, perhaps again, of Frodo and his friends. Sam, cried Frodo. Yes, sir, said Sam, begging your pardon, sir, but I meant no wrong to you, Mr. Frodo, or to Mr. Gandalf, for that matter. He has some sense, mind you, and when, he said, go alone, when you said go alone, he said, no, take someone as you can trust. But it does not seem that I can trust anyone said Frodo. Sam looked at him unhappily. It all depends on what you want, put in Mary. You can trust us to stick to you through thick and thin to the bitter end, and you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you can keep it yourself, but you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone or go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. Anywhere, anyway, there it is. We, may, we know most of what Gandalf told you, we know a good deal about the ring. We are horribly afraid. But we are coming with you. We're following you like hounds. We, we read stories like this. We look into friendship like this, and something begins to happen in our hearts. We begin to see what? The blessing of unity and companionship. We even begin to long for something, maybe something we've never known in this life. But it's something rich and something real all the same. We begin to say with the psalmist, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. As we really think about applying this text to our lives, I, I think we need to put our experiences and our presuppositions out on the table. You see, some of us, perhaps many of us, we're, we're afraid of being known and being seen because we've been burnt too many times. We've been hurt too deeply. So this idea of unity or real fellowship, it sounds okay, maybe, but living alone or living behind a protective wall, it's, it's just better, right? I, I need you to hear me well. And ultimately, I, I need you to hear the Word of God well. Unity is complicated, and it is messy, and we're going to talk more about that later. But we really need to start together by acknowledging and believing deep in our bones that Christian unity is good and pleasant and worth celebrating and pursuing. The second thing we need to see in this psalm is the foundation of Christian unity. This is going to be really a kind of a brief point, but it's an important one. It's a vital one. Near the end of verse 1, the psalmist talks about brothers 
dwelling or living together in unity. Now, in its original context, the word brothers is clearly a reference to those of Jewish lineage. Remember, this is a psalm of ascent. The people of Israel from various tribes and various regions, they joined together to sing this psalm on the way to Jerusalem. Verse 1 reminds the Old Covenant people of what? They are one family of God. But we need, to, we need to think a little bit more broadly. Have you ever really considered, this is very interesting, in fact, this just occurred to me kind of this week as I studied this passage, have you ever considered the way, the primary way that Christians refer to one another in the New Testament? I want you to listen to a few references from the various epistles. Peace be to the brothers. Timothy, our brother, I appeal to you, brothers, count it all joy, my brothers. I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came. If, if you take maybe this afternoon or uh, every day this week and just read through the entire book of Acts, <laughs> you'll realize that the word brothers is actually the primary identifier used to describe the new covenant people of God. So why all the familial or, or brotherhood language? The apostles realized that in and through Jesus Christ, all believers through all times and in all places are in fact one family of God. We are joint heirs with Christ, sons and daughters of the Most High, eternals, eternal brothers and sisters, born again by blood and spirit. The real foundation of our unity then, it's not genetic. The foundation of our unity, today and in all places and in all times, the foundation of our brotherhood is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'd, I'd like you to take a moment, and I mean this when I say this. I want you to, to look around this room this morning. Look to your left, look to your right. You can even look behind you. I know that may be a little awkward. As you're looking around, keep doing it. I want you to make a mental note of how the people in this room are different than you. There are different ethnicities in this room. <laughs> there are different interests and tastes. There are different personal and family backgrounds, different financial positions, different educational goals, different sin struggles. There are men and women in this room, even a few boys and girls. Now, we... We don't all look the same. We don't all sound the same. We don't want all of the same things. So here's the question. What do we have in common? Jesus. We have Jesus. Let me, let me get really practical. Our unity as God's people here at Clemson Prez is not based on personality. 
It is not based on the natural friendships that we hold with other people in this room. It isn't based on our hobbies or who we pull for on Saturday afternoons or how we choose to educate our children or who we voted for or how we feel about face coverings or how we look or which local community we happen to live in. Our unity isn't even built around this physical space or our ministries or our particular gifts and burdens. The foundation of our Christian unity is not a place or a program or a principle. The foundation of Christian unity is a person. It's Christ and Christ alone. The only thing, the only thing and the great thing, the person that makes us brothers and sisters is Jesus. We are capable of dwelling together in unity when we acknowledge that we are all fallen image bearers of God, redeemed through the person and saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our foundation and none other. In verses 2 and 3, the psalmist gives us an illustration of Christian unity. What does it look like for this good and pleasant Christian brotherhood to, to move forward or to be enjoyed? Well, there's actually two illustrations. I want to read them for you again. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. Full honesty? It is okay if either one or both of those word pictures are a little confusing for you this morning. They were for me. Now, most of us are not wildly familiar with the ceremonial law or Near Eastern geography. So <laughs> I want to do my best to explain what the psalmist is saying here and why it actually matters. When Aaron was set apart or consecrated as the high priest of Israel, he, he was anointed with a very fragrant, special kind of oil. In, in Exodus 30, we actually have this oil described for us. It was a mixture of myrrh and cinnamon and cassia and calamus root and olive oil. The psalmist calls this oil precious. Why? Because what he's really describing is a kind of extremely expensive, rare, and holy perfume. So when this oil was poured over Aaron's head, the air would have been filled with a very powerful, sweet, warm, and earthy, comforting scent. And because this oil ran from his head into what would have been for Aaron a very long beard, and onto his clothing, it served as a reminder to Aaron, and really quite frankly to just everyone who was within a 10-foot radius of him, okay, that there was this wonderful thing that God was doing and blessing and that he was present in the lives of his people. The second picture is, I think, a little easier to understand. Mount Hermon is located on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. It's in modern-day Syria and Lebanon. It's the tallest mountain peak in, in, in its region, so it captures the vast majority of the precipitation in the area. The springs coming off of this mountain actually gather together to form the Jordan River. But here in Psalm 133, 
the psalmist envisions the cooling dews of Mount Hermon blanketing the warm, dry hills around Jerusalem. But what's the point, right? What do these two illustrations have to do with the unity of God's people? Well, consider what the two pictures have in common. Both point to a powerful, tangible, spreading refreshment with a heavenly origin. Christian unity, then, is one of God's most powerful, refreshing, life-giving, and life-enriching gifts. Like the psalmist, we should cherish and celebrate the unity that is ours in Christ and in all the covenant promises that God has given us in Him. Now, Again, I know genuine fellowship can be hard and uncomfortable and even risky, but it's good for us. It's something we should lean into. Something this morning that as a local body of believers, we should be willing to preserve. We should learn to love and feed and rejoice in it. Thus far, we've looked at the celebration of Christian unity. When God's people are together, genuinely together, it is good and pleasant. We've also identified the foundation of Christian unity. We are brothers and sisters. How? In and through Christ alone. We've examined two illustrations of Christian unity too. Christian unity is an intense, God-given refreshment for us. Before we leave this passage, we're going to give our attention to one final point this morning. It's the realization or the full realization of Christian unity. You may have noticed earlier that I cut verse 3 a little short when I was reading about the dews of Hermon. Here's how the whole verse reads. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. There's an important observation about Zion here at the end of verse 3. The psalmist, he recognizes that Zion, or Jerusalem, is the place of God's commanded blessing concerning life forevermore. What's that about? <laughs> well, don't, don't miss this. Here the psalmist is catching a glimpse of the future. He sees what? All of God's people gathered together in God's presence, in God's place forever. This means that unity is, is not something just novel for the present. Unity with God and others, that perfect, enduring, eternal unity, it's our destiny in Christ. The first part of Revelation 21 is a, is a familiar passage to many of us. But I want us to hear it again in light of what we just read in Psalm 133. The Apostle John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We we can see and hear the parallels here, right? Here is the new Jerusalem, new Zion. In this place, everything that creates pain and division and distance has ceased to exist. God's people are together with God forever. This is the full realization of Christian unity. We we look into this promised future, a future that the psalmist sees in Psalm 133, and our hearts begin to scream, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. But again, if we're not careful, we might also grow at least a little discouraged. Because you see, we know that today is not that day. We know that our unity as God's people is still incomplete. Unity is a struggle. Relationships with other Christians can be difficult to navigate and feel really awkward and unnatural at times. So, so, so what do we do? I think we need to let the reality of unity in the future shape our pursuit of unity in the present. Since we will be a unified people in the life to come, we should be a unified people in the life that is. This means that we're going to have to strive by God's grace toward things like repentance and forgiveness and peace and life together. Again, let me be as practical as I can be. If this morning you know that there is something between you and someone else in this church, even if that something is very old and deep and ugly, then you need to stop trying to ignore or downplay or run away from the problem. It is our privilege and our opportunity and our responsibility in Christ to work toward the reconciliation and unity that is ours as God's people. And since we're really getting down to brass tacks this morning, let me also say this. If you don't have a clue how to start the process of reconciliation, if you are afraid, then I want you to know that I'm going to do everything I can to personally come alongside you as one of your pastors in that. I'll be happy to help in any way that I can. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there are many other people in this congregation who would be willing to do the same. So how can we really be a unified church in a divided world? I think in light of Psalm 133, so much of it comes down to remembering. We need to remember that unity is good and pleasant. We need to remember that unity is something we actually now possess in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to remember that unity is a gift from God meant for our comfort and encouragement and refreshment. 
we need to remember that unity is our future as God's people. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. Running down on the collar of his robes, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly grateful that in Christ we know fellowship and union and blessing in a a way that, quite frankly, is unnatural to us as fallen people. God, we are thankful that in Christ we have the privilege of celebrating unity together. We are thankful, God, that in Christ we have the privilege of working toward that unity together. Lord, by Your Spirit this morning, You may be working in hearts and minds, convicting individuals or maybe even families of a way that unity needs to be pursued in real time today or this week. God, I pray that You would encourage and strengthen that individual or those individuals to pursue reconciliation together. God, I pray that we as a church would be a place of pursuing gospel reconciliation good and pleasant unity together as your people. Lord, we pray all these things now in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.